Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Dr. Timothy Yen. He is the author of Choose. Well, let's see if we can get this. Choose Better. Oh, that's all blurry out. Choose Better, the optimal decision-making framework. So, Timothy, I make a lot of decisions. I'm sure a lot of our listeners make a lot of decisions. So you, you caught, caught my attention with, um, with the title of this book. So, yeah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. So, Tim, as we agreed up front, I could call you Tim, right? Uh, yeah. t- tell us a little bit, uh, yeah, about your backstory. Like, what what uh, brought you to this point where you're you're now writing books about making decisions? So, I'm a, a clinical train. Uh, it's clinical psychologist by training. So, uh, I, I do a lot of intimate work with clients on decision making, making sure they forge the kind of path that they want to li- live and the kind of identity that they want to hold. So I, I do have a lot of those experiences in my my career. Uh, but in terms of my just quick, I guess, one minute backstory, origin story, uh, I am from from Southern California originally. So greetings from America. And, and I'm currently living in Northern California in the San Francisco Bay Area. Right. And I am Asian American. My my parents. My dad's from Taiwan. My mom's from uh, Macau, which is part of China now. And they immigrated here, uh, gave birth to me. So I'm born here in America and yeah, grew up, like I said, in Southern California, uh, joined the military out of high school, which you may want to get into in a little bit, uh, which is where I came across mental health. I was a mental health specialist in the U.S. Army. And right. because of that experience, that's what led me to pursuing a career uh, doing it now. And I have a lovely wife and a one and a half year old son at this time of recording. Oh, wow. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I've got Thank two you. boys, four and a half. So they're uh, a little bit older. But yeah, remember that stage? Uh, <laughs> it's fun. Of, you get, you're getting much sleep? He's been surprisingly gracious to us in giving us more sleep than we bargained for. So no complaints on this side of the world. Oh, oh, wow. Brilliant. That's great. Uh, yeah. So you and you say in the book you left, you, you joined the, uh, the army principally to pay for college, right? That was the, the main right. driver. My, my father started a business and it didn't turn out as planned. And so a lot of the, the money that my family thought they had to support me for college wasn't really there. And, and knowing my parents, they probably would have made it work and scrounged up some money to help me uh, through school. But I don't know, as a dutiful son, I didn't want to put that burden on them. And then, of course, the army recruiter happened to be ringing my doorbell around that time. So serendipitous, I don't know. But one thing led to another. Uncle Sam said that he will pay for my college tuition. And I said, sign me up. Take eight years of my life. And that, that's what happened. Right. So it's eight years. Um, and did you know right then you wanted to do a degree in psychology? As, or, or... No. So in the beginning, I wanted to be a journalist. But okay. long story short, I found out I was severely colorblind. And apparently you need color vision to be a journalist in the army. So... Mental health was one of the few jobs that did not require color vision. So, okay, that I, 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 led so it wasn't down the path journal- I'm in now. I didn't even realize you could yes. be a journalist in the army. Like, 
what you you kind of yeah. I guess writing reports that go back to you know back to base on how things are, right okay I believe so That's I never I never knew because they didn't accept me yeah so I wish I could tell you more but they didn't want me <laughs> so then you were like but something about the why, why mental health right was that or that basically was your only other option or once you once they realized you were it kind was of the only it was the only other option I wanted that I thought okay if I didn't go down the journalism route mental health counseling that was my other cup of tea and if the military didn't give me that option i would have dropped out i wouldn't have enlisted oh right okay so So it was that strong in you that you wanted to get into that yeah yes yeah oh wow and and then they paid you so they paid you all the way to become a doctor like the, the full all the way through to the phd or so i don't know how nuance you want my answer to be but the short answer is yes they they paid for pretty much all my undergrad and with the money that i saved up and the the tuition that they kind of backed they paid for all of my doctorate minus a semester so it it lasted that long so i'm very grateful thank you united states of america for supporting my my career Right. Yeah. And uh, well, you talk about some of some of the your early clients, um, yeah, presumably came from from the military. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. A lot of worked with a lot of veterans and a lot of soldiers at the time who were going to and from Iraq and Afghanistan during that uh, military campaign. So I, I was part of Operation Iraqi Freedom or enduring freedom one of one of those two campaigns back in 2003 okay and did that mean you going out into the you know into iraq and working with people there or was this all back in in the state well thankfully they did not deploy me so they did deploy me but stateside so i got assigned to a okay. an army hospital but then part of our job was doing screenings for mental fitness for soldiers returning back on tour going to and coming back, making sure that their, their mental health was okay. So I was part of that mission during that time. Okay. So you were the doc they had to convince they were sane. <laughs> well, I wasn't a doc then. I was just a chump. I, I didn't know anything. I was, I was just the assistant to the doc back then. I was 19, 18, 19. Yeah, I was oh, really wow, young. Right. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, was, yeah, out of high school. Yeah, I was not a doc then. Right. Right. Uh, but what were the, some of the trend just, you know, we could dive into it. I'm sure it'll relate, relate ultimately to, to, the, to the framework and so on in the book. But what, uh, yeah, what were some of the trends or the themes that you saw in working in that role? Yeah, well, what I did learn that was directly applicable to my life was when I get married and have a family, I did not want to be in the military. That was my big takeaway when I was doing some of the work with the soldiers coming back, because it is so incredibly hard on families, as you can imagine, mm. a, a husband or a wife, whoever happens to be in the service, can get sent for a year, a year and a half, two years overseas. I mean, if your child was six months, your child would be two and a half years old by the time you return, right? Like, yeah. I would never want to do that to my wife and, and just kind of peace out. And so, so there's a lot of sacrifice that I've learned when I was doing the work with these soldiers. I was like, it is incredibly hard. And if I had any say in it, I would not want to put my family through that. That was one of my big takeaways 
is that it is really incredibly hard work um, to, to balance both protecting your nation, but also having a personal life of sorts. Um, and and it really is uh, kind of a dice roll, <laughs> whether you go here, go there. I mean, there's really very little say in what you want as an individual. So when I was single and kind of naive, fine, I, I can do that for my for my own life's sake. Sure, I, I can gamble that. But I knew when I was out, uh, I did not want to uh, impinge or impose that on my family. Uh, but other trends, of course, is like trauma. Of course, that's a big one. Well, uh, depression, yeah. anxiety, like that, that kind of stuff, of course, was uh, negative impacts on relationships. You know, all those things were common with the soldiers that I saw. Right. Right. But it's fascinating. The first thing you, you mentioned is the family dynamic, not, not the trauma. Because I, I suppose in our minds, and maybe this is true of most people, is we, we just think of we think of the trauma, we think of PTSD and we associate closely with the military. So we think when we think in terms of mental health, that's where we tend to gravitate, yeah. not the, not the family strain. So it's interesting that that was the first thing that came to mind for you. Because it was directly personal to me when I was doing the work, I was just noticing such a negative impact and how hard it was on families for whatever reason. Yeah. Maybe because I'm a family man now that happened to surface to my memory but yes, yeah. trauma, PTSD, all of that. Yes, yes, yes. All of that was there. Right. Um, and I read, I read something how it's got worse in modern warfare because, you know, in the, this, this was my, what I'd heard in terms of the rationale was that in the past we had uh, these short, sharp battles, but then most of the time people are just like hanging around waiting for stuff to happen. They're lying around, you know, they're in trenches. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, it isn't this constant... Uh, battle, but as I understand it now, a lot of modern warfare is you know constant exposure to firefights and and battle. Is yeah. is that right? Well, I'm going to add one more dimension to that, which is back in the Civil War or the American mm. Revolution, it was very clear who the good guys were, who the bad guys were. Very clear, right. right? The guys wearing blue are good. The people wearing red, at least. From the American standpoint, of course, Great Britain will have a very mm. different take on who's is good and who's bad. But yeah. when you get into modern warfare, I mean, the child could be strapped with the bomb. Like, like you just don't even know who is on whose side. And so there's such a psychological impact because you can't trust anyone. Like so, so I think that really wears on people because. Like the good old days, movies were really clear on who was good or who was bad. But now, I mean, the the structure isn't even vertical anymore, especially with terrorism. It is it is horizontal. Like you're not really sure mm. who is the command of what. And, you know, the, the idea like if you chop the head of the snake, the snake dies. But we're not really sure who or what is the head. Right. So you're right. There is this kind of enduring element to war now because we're not really sure how it ends <laughs> it, it just kind of continues and kind of permeates like every everything so yes i agree it, it's much more stressful in that regard right um and that would be a lot of what and you would deal would you be calling it post-traumatic stress disorder i mean that was a big part of the job was it back then it was doing screenings doing what we call the intake interview, which is kind of getting their story, understanding what the problem was, 
But because I didn't have a proper license or degree as an 18 year old, I wasn't permitted to treat, right? I, I can actually yeah. help them. I just listen to these grown men cry and then be like, I'm sorry, sir. I, I'm not actually the one you're seeing. Uh, I'm going to pass your file over to the psychologist and he will take it from here. So that was my job. But, but yes, definitely trauma. The, the thing about war is, and I, I truly believe this, that there are certain things, atrocities that humans should never be exposed to. Like our, our brain w- was not wired to know what to do with certain kind of sights and sounds and, and, and experiences. And so that's really the heart of trauma, right? The trauma is a experience that is so adverse. It, it shatters your paradigm of what the world should be. And you're kind mm. of putting the pieces back together, trying to make sense. What the heck happened? And, and, and where right. do I fit into this perfect, just world? It's not perfect. It's not just, it's not even safe. It's not predictable. How do I make sense of it now? So that's, Trauma in a nutshell. And war will do that, right? A battlefield will bring some of those elements out in someone. Yeah, I like that description. Yeah, it's just a total shattering experience that you can't, you're not equipped to handle. We were never meant to be. Yeah, we were never meant to handle those kind of losses or sights and death and those kind of things. And that we can survive, survive them. I had another um, guest on the show, Daniela Seth, and she said that when it came to a lot of the childhood, outside of war this is, but a lot of the childhood traumas that, that we can be exposed to now, very often if you receive the level of trauma that you, you just wouldn't have, you wouldn't have survived, right? You know, if you've been right. seriously neglected by your parents or, you know, you know abused by very often – those kids just wouldn't have made it, right? They would, but but most of us stay alive with this trauma, which is which is one of the aspects of you know modern life that our predecessors didn't have to deal with. But I thought it was another interesting, and I guess the same is for war. You know, we, our ability to keep these soldiers alive after these traumas is, right. is greatly enhanced, right? And I guess another perspective, since we're talking about trauma at this current moment, another way to think about it too is. Some of when trauma is experienced, either as a child, as a, as an adult, our brain shifts into this fight or flight survival mode. And so, like you said, like I don't know how these children are able to survive these atrocities. It's because their brain had to do a quick maneuver on okay, uh, sh- shut out love, shut shut out relationships because relationships just hurt you, right? It's like this. Um, kind of overarching takeaway. And so they just end up being really closed off because the people in their life that they were supposed to trust weren't trustworthy. Now they grow up as an adult. There are people that are trustworthy, but because of previous trauma, they've learned to kind of close themselves off because it worked as a child, but now it's getting in the way as an adult. And so sometimes trauma gets a bad rep and, it should, but trauma is essentially a survival, a kind of a primitive way of operating that worked when you're in a survival type situation. But when you're no longer in that situation, you want more 
out of life and you want to live fully, then you may want some guidance on how to heal from that trauma state. And so, and so when you say trauma gets a bad rep, what do you mean? Meaning that the trauma, the trauma obviously is the negative experience, but the way that our brain maneuvers to self-protect that piece is what we would say is the, the hurt, right? The, Mm. the thing that is still in your brain and that's what gets a bad rep, but it's really, it helped you survive. Like you said, I don't know how these children The the, the ways that we managed to defend against that trauma, the pain of that trauma is what gets the bad rep, right? Yeah. The trauma response. Yeah. 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 And we, we could often That's shame it. and demonize those behaviors that, I mean, I'm talking from my own experience. Right? I have talked on this show about my major trauma was in birth, right? And that's what I've spent a lot of, mm-hmm. done a lot of work on. But yeah, all of the addictions and the dysfunction I ended up in were the things that get shamed by society. And yet they were the things that kept me functioning at some level. On some level, kept you alive on some level. Yeah. So that's yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I guess in the military context as well, you've got that going on, plus the family strain. Yeah, I can imagine there's a lot of yeah, yeah a lot of pain you saw. Oh, sort. there's so much more. Oh, there's so much more than that. But yes, those are probably the top five. But there's even within the military structure, right? You don't always have great leaders. And, the, and there's right. the bureaucracy and there's the power dynamics and oppression. There's all sorts of interesting things that people experience when God, i hadn't even considered that because yeah. we're getting stories coming out of the british press now about these horrific like initiation rights in the army and you know terrible <laughs> in the details terrible yeah pretty bloody awful. Uh, and you could have had just that alone yes terrible yeah and and it sometimes is often not talked about it's just something mm. that they have to endure and if you are not adjusting well well then you're weak right something's wrong with you but I would argue that's a traumatic experience. You shouldn't have to deal with that well. You shouldn't have to go through that in the first place. But, you know, yeah. I, there's a saying that I like, uh, hurt people hurt people. <laughs> right? So right. it kind of goes downward. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I'm so conscious with my own kids. It's like I have to, why I keep doing my own work. I, I know this isn't going to be a show, but we will get to your book. But, you know, <laughs> the, why I keep so motivated to work on my own trauma resolution is I know that to be true, right? The extent to which I'm still hurt, I will definitely hurt my kids, right? So I have to keep working every day on breaking that cycle, breaking that cycle, break heal, break the cycle, and then I won't push it down to the next generation. Yeah, your your kids thank you in advance for doing the healing work for yourself. Because you're absolutely yeah. right. That that is the healing work is the gift that keeps on giving. You have a better quality of life, but you have more to give of yourself when you're not battling kind of your inner demons of the past. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Um, so that's, you yeah, know, so that's not actually not the focus of your book, but it, it does obviously inform parts of the book. Um, but let's get into it then. So, so this is about choosing better, the optimal decision-making framework. Uh, so yeah, give us a little bit of the genesis of how you came up with this this concept, and and you know then we we'll guess let's get into it. Sure. So the the origins of the book actually came from a dinner conversation I had with a friend who is a CEO of a tech company 
uh, in Taiwan. And we were having dinner and I simply asked the question uh, because at that time I was in the process of developing a consulting firm, which is kind of what I'm in the process of doing now. And I just asked a CEO, what is a service or what's a topic that we as a company can bring to, to really kind of bless and, and help your people. And she's the one that came up with the idea. She told me that critical thinking is a, is a big piece of what could be further developed for her uh, executives, for her managers, supervisors, all the way down to, to employees that given her company, there were so many uh, deadlines and, and specialists that have different opinions about what should be taking the front seat. And it was just a lot of people were not on the same page about decisions. And so she said, if you can help our teams with that process, come up with a system that can help them kind of think through these barriers and make decisions more effectively, more efficiently, that would have tremendous value. So I took that dinner conversation, thought about it a little bit more and realized that it's not a tech company thing. It's a human thing, decision-making. And so I really kind of went inward, did some introspection on the thousands of clients that I've seen and what are some of these prevailing themes that keep coming up about either identifying what gets in the way of good decisions. Because if you think about it, a lot of the clients that I see, not that it was self-imposed, sometimes it is, right? But the suffering that they experience, it's really about how they think about it and how they respond that leads to new outcomes. And sometimes they're undesirable outcomes. So I, I thought about the work that I do with these clients and I'm like, how do I guide? How do I help them understand and lead them onto greener pastures, so to speak? <laughs> and that's where the framework got birth. I was like, oh, the more I think about it, it really comes down to these four major tenets that we end up discovering together that helps them, empowers them, equips them to make the optimal decision for themselves. Right, right. Uh yeah, and why it links to our previous conversation here is the the first. Well, yeah, the first here is uh, is emotions, right? After we've worked out where we're yeah. at, right? The first is is uh, emotions, and um, yeah, that 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 accorded with me in terms of to the extent that I've grown as a person. It, it's been uh, it's been down to how much I can get into my emotion, and at least understanding it because. If you're human, you have emotions. And if something's important, you're definitely going to have emotions about that thing. But oftentimes people are either illiterate to what these emotions are really trying to tell them, or they have grown up in a culture to ignore them. <laughs> Don't listen to them. And I ar- make an argument in the book that your emotions are your friends. Like they're actually trying mm. to help you out if only you'll take the time to listen and understand what's at the heart of the matter. Right. And I don't know if you've come across the work at the Heart Math Institute. So mm-hmm. these guys have done research on, uh, you know, in electrical signals from the brain. They've discovered that the, the heart sends more signals to the brain than the brain sends to the heart. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Right, that, that makes right. a lot of sense. And of course yeah. the heart isn't the only center of emotions in the body, but it's, it's, that's interesting, right? You know, they, mm-hmm. they give us they get, give us so much information 
Uh, and yeah, yeah, certainly I was for most of my life, not tried it just not consciously, but, uh, yeah, tr- trying to do everything in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's where you, you start with people is like ch- ch- check in with what you're feeling when it comes, right. when you're facing a decision. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So when you're facing a decision, I, I also want to add that we rarely, rarely have just one emotion about yeah. something, right? We have kind of a, a complex hodgepodge of emotions, a little bit of fear, maybe a little bit more of excitement, a little bit of anger about certain things. And so each one of those emotions are pinpointing something important. And so I encourage people to take a deeper dive in understanding what your feelings are trying to tell you. Yeah. And and I, I sort of come across some of the people that I work with now and I'll ask the question, you know, how do you feel about this? They'll be like, well, I'm fine, right? And, and you could ask the question like five times. Are you, are, are you, <laughs> and, I, and I have Nothing. so much empathy because I was that, in that place. Yeah, you know, long time. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I'm fine. What do you mean? I'm, how do I feel? I feel fine. I'm okay. And um, so how do you, you know, work with people who have that kind of issue, right? They just don't have the vocabulary, the access or, you know. Yeah, I mean... I mean, that's, that's where I have my work cut out for, for my profession, which is really helping people decipher the code of, of emotions, uh, amongst other things. But I would probably start for, for those maybe who grew up in a family or, or culture where emotions were not valued, like it just wasn't something important or it was shameful even to be talking about such a thing. I would probably start with keeping it really binary, right? Which is, does let, let's just keep it kind of black and white for starts. Does this bring satisfaction, contentment, or does it not? Let's just start there. Like, if you don't know, then let's just start with that. If, if you had to choose, does it bring satisfaction or not? And for most situations, it's usually not. That's why they're in a dilemma. It's because it's something that brings about discontentment of some level. Then we can start going in a little bit deeper. Okay, let's, let's take the spread of some universal emotions to, to help kind of rule out things. Like, is this more of an emotion of, of sadness, which would be characterized as loss? Like, is there something important that is no longer here? Are you afraid that you're going to be losing uh, is it more about anxiety or fear that some some type of harm may befall on you? Uh, what could that harm be? Right? So it's just helping people go down a path of kind of ruling in, ruling out different things. And of course, uh, emotional intelligence is a skill. Like some people are more intuitive than others, but I would say everyone can grow in that area. And so it's kind of like training children. It's the same kind of thing. What I tell parents is use emotional language because your children, when they're having an experience and you as a parent, you're observing and you know, they're like losing their stuff at that moment, right? They're throwing a tantrum. They're like chucking their favorite toy at you. Like something is happening. You would put a word to that experience. It seems like you're angry, right? It seems like you're upset. And the child is like, oh, Whatever is going on right now, that's what anger is, right? Ta-da! You just upgraded one, one level in your emotional intelligence. 
you would do the same kind of process with an adult that maybe has not had as much exposure to that inner emotional world. Right. I like that. And I like your idea of putting it binary because I can remember when I was first trying to get this articulation, I was, I was, I was in this like group process and we'd start this meeting with this just list of like sentences. I feel sad. I feel, and, and I'd stare at this list and sometimes it take me forever just to like, okay, which one is it? Like, and, and I think that idea of just starting with, okay, does it make me feel worse or does it make me feel, you know, that's, that's, that's quite good. But what you say about kids is spot on because with my kids, I can already see like they're, they're like, I could argue my five-year-old has more emotional intelligence now or four-year-old than, than of now than, than I probably did when I was 30. And he, sure. you know, he, his brother pissed him off this morning and he kind of like comes into the kitchen and, uh, you know, Otto won't let me play with his kid. And, 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 and I'm feeling sad about that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's such a win. Yeah. Here's a candy bar. You did so yeah. well. You, you were able to articulate that. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so it's great, you know, it's, it's great that, so yeah, I suppose that, that that illustrates this point, right? If we weren't brought up with that and so many, and certainly that was my experience as a kid, right? And it wasn't even that our feelings were just, I think, actively shamed. It was just, it was just, they were just never articulated, right? So I just never learned the behavior because it, nobody ever did it, right? So I didn't have that modeling and, you know, plus my, you know, the, the trauma was sort of exacerbated by, by earlier trauma, but yeah, it's, uh. Yeah, it starts in childhood. It does. And for, for all the listeners out there, my hope is people start that journey. If, if it's not something that you're accustomed to or hasn't been really talked about or valued, uh, it, it just adds so much more like richness, in, in a way, control over your life. Because when you're able to put these things to words, it's part of the communication. Like someone else can understand like, oh, you're, you're feeling sad about that. Okay, I, I felt sad before. Like, I, I kind of know what that could be about. And, and that's my common humanity thread. You know, this podcast is about being human. What, what does it mean to be human is, is actually emotions is the common thread that pierces all of us is I may not have lost a mother, right? Or maybe I've never um, lost a child or whatever experience that you have but I know what sadness is, right? Or, mm. or I, I know what anger is or, or being confused. And, and so that is the common denominator is, is our emotions. And so when we subtract that from our lives or, and we don't want that as part of our conversation, I mean, you're, we're emitting a really big piece of what holds humanity together. Mm. And how was it for you? Because like, if you don't know, I might be asking, you know, Asian families often have like the stereotype of maybe a bit like the British, right? Like not being particularly in touch with their emotions. Is, is that true in your life? Or? Uh, hmm, yeah, that, that's a great question. So in my upbringing, I would probably say that in a way we did better than your average Asian household because when they immigrated to the U.S., there was probably a conscious, unconscious process of trying to be more American. <laughs> so, right. so I think my parents were trying to simulate and, and trying to do what the Americans did now that they're here. And because of that, I'm sure there is more openness to, you know, conversating about emotions and things of that nature. Uh, I, I've been really blessed to have a very nurturing mother who is willing to talk about those kind of things. Uh, my father, 
God bless his soul, early on in in our upbringing, there's a lot of frustration <laughs> and, and a lot of anger expressions. And therefore, as a child, I grew up very fearful, uh, like very right. uh, kind of on edge, anxious. Like I just didn't want to screw up because if I tripped the wrong wire, I lose a leg. And so it, it was just that kind of upbringing with me and my dad. And I mean, he's a million times better now as, as, as the years have gone on. But it's true. There, there are certain emotions that are celebrated. And then there's certain emotions that are not. And mm. lucky for me, I get to start my own family and get to set a new precedent on how we do things. And it, it's so critical to me that there isn't even good or bad emotions. <laughs> there's definitely more distressing ones. And more pleasurable emotions, sure, but there, there really isn't good or bad. I, I think they're all important. Uh, yeah. There's a wide spectrum, and and to to experience the full human experience, it means embracing the fact that we contain all of those emotions, depending on what what life throws at us and and how we interpret things in our lives. Yeah, and you make the point in the book that they're not gendered, right? You know, we, we there's this. They're not gendered. They're not gendered. That's right. Men, men can cry. Men can feel sadness, right? Women are allowed to feel angry and everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's such a, such an important point. Um, yeah. And then, so, we, okay. So, so, so the first, the first part of this is getting in touch, right? Asking that question, how do I feel developing over time, that facility to, to, to connect with our emotions and then it's value to self, right? Yes, this is the next part of, and you can think about the, the decision-making framework as a data point collection. Like you're just right. kind of collecting data points and, and you're considering all these data points in your decision-making process. And I remember uh, a reader of, of my book said that, hey, like not, not to toot my own horn, but he was like, hey, this book is really incredible. And I know that this is the real deal because you don't give any quick fixes easy answers it's like this is truly the real deal because you're just telling us a framework like a way to approach a decision but you got to do the work right you got to be the one collecting the data points but at least when you're done with this process you have the confidence that you thought this through thoroughly right like this was a informed decision uh, does it guarantee 100% results as planned? No, obviously not. But at least you know that you didn't haphazardly make a mistake that you could have avoided because you actually took the time to think it through. So yes, emotions is part one of that framework, uh, gathering data about how you feel about the situation. Um, the second one, as you alluded, values of self is actually intimately connected with the feelings. As I mentioned earlier, you would not feel strongly about anything if it wasn't important, right? Like, I don't know what's something that's not particularly important. Uh, I'm looking out my window right now and there's different shrubbery and bushes and trees. If if they said, hey, we're going to change up this shrubbery to a lemon tree, like, what do you think? I, I don't think I would feel much at all. I would just be like, okay. Yeah, do do your worst. Yeah, switch it out, right? Because I, I don't really care. But if it happened to be, you know, the shrubbery that my great great grandfather planted and it has a lot of sentimental value, 
then I would have a certain feeling that would come up when they're saying, hey, let's replace it. So, so it, it's just important that when we feel something, it's always tied back to our values. Like there's something important. There's something that matters to you. And so we try to retrace our steps. And if we feel strongly about something, what value does that point to? Like, what does that say about you as an individual? And what does this say about the value that you want to uphold? Or what value is being violated? And that is why you're feeling the way that you are. And so that's part of the process of identifying in this situation, what values are either at stake or what, what values do I want to uphold when I make this decision? Right. Right. Yeah. And actually in reading the book, I didn't make that connection as strongly as you just made it, but yeah, of course our value is so intimately tied up with what we feel, right? Yeah. Right. And the strength of different values to the extent they've been assaulted by, you know, the prospect of some decision. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then the one that I always skip. <laughs> <laughs> I know where you're going with this, but go ahead. <laughs> the value to others, right? That was a, that was a slap in the face. Yeah. I, and, and I, I kind of half jokingly tell, you know, my readers that if people walk out of the room reading this book, more selfish people, I would have failed. Like I, I would have failed as an author because that is not what's going to make the world a better place. I, I would have miserably failed. So I needed to add that tenet, which was the value of others. And the big driving point there is other people value things that may or may not be the same as what you value in, in, in any given situation. So please be people that are at least considerate of what other people care about. Can we make decisions that at least attempt, it doesn't always happen that way, right? But at least attempt at a win-win scenario. Like, can we all win in this when I make this decision as opposed to I get all of the pie, you get none. Can we make decisions where it honors other people in our relationships or honors other people that are involved with this decision? But it does require a certain level of mindfulness, uh, thoughtfulness to even ask those kind of questions and be like, hey, I'm, I'm considering doing this. Uh, yes, it means it's going to move the family 100 miles away from our community and this and that, but it's a great job opportunity. So wife, like, any thoughts, right? Like you should ask that question, right? You shouldn't be like, all right, this is a great job opportunity. We're going to move the family. We're going to, it doesn't matter what my son and the friends that he's made, like, it doesn't matter, right? We're all just going to leave. Hopefully we are people that considered the values of others. Right. Yeah. And, and I, what's coming to me as I consider the framework is that the, <clears throat> I think my, my, definitely my weak spot would be not always valuing what others, you know, can think about, you know, decision I might be making. But I'm also aware that there are people who they're, they're too far in that direction, right? And they never consider their own values. So I, I think this idea of having a framework where you're like checking from different angles yes. is important, right? Yeah, it's funny because you're, you're talking a little bit about my Asian American background. And I would say on the east side of the world, right, uh, in, in the Asian countries, it's precisely that problem. When, when I present the framework to people in Asia, the values of self is very foreign. Like they're not really sure what they value. What they value is what their parents value, right? Or what society values. And so they can rattle off values of others real quick. But when I ask them questions of values of self, they're giving me a, 
deer in the headlights kind of look like what do you mean what do i feel about it right <laughs> or what, what yeah. do you mean like what's important to me so it's just different parts of the world uh, I, I think western perspectives we do the values of self pretty well not always values of others as equally balanced yeah that that makes sense to me and you know we tend to get more often more holistic thinking from the from the east but then we get that mm-hmm. we got to get, get more sort of hor- heroic individualism that you know dominates the sort of thinking in the, in the west right yeah that's yeah, it. No, that makes that makes a sense um and then reality like checking in on your reality right what are the facts yeah so that's that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle which is in any situation there are going to be reality factors, things that, how do you know they're reality factors and not some of these other three pillars that we've been talking about? You know, it is a reality factor when it is independent of what you think and what you feel. Like gravity, it doesn't matter if you understand gravity, if you know what it is, if you agree with it, if you like it, it doesn't matter. Gravity doesn't care what you think about gravity. It's just a force in the world. And so there are things in our situation about uh, when we make decisions that are just already in place that we may want to consider, right? If we're talking about uh, potential outcomes or how other people may react or, you know, just kind of the rules of the company, there's certain things that are already firmly in place. We just want to consider those things when we make decisions as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the last piece here is courage, being tough and following through. And I really, you know, I really resonated with that part of the book because you bring this all together. And I was familiar with this idea, actually, just before I talk about that, that this idea of what are the facts. I don't know if you've um, come across nonviolent communication. Vaguely, uh, but Marcus, please you know, understand. Mark, you know, like Microsoft got really into it. Uh, Sachin Nadella um, advised that all of the leadership team read it. But, but they have a similar process where they're like, separate the facts they do something slightly different. They separate facts, uh, then feelings, and then the requests you want to make of others, right? So it's not directly pertaining to decision-making. Um, it's more sort of general, communication in general. But yeah, they also make that important distinction. Like you want to separate facts and feelings and articulate them um, you know, separately. Um, similar to the five styles of thinking, right? The, 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 the five hats, whatever it is, right? You, you, you take out, um, you know, you separate yeah. out. Um, but um, but the last piece here I really like, especially when it comes to decision, is courage, right? Like, you've got to have the courage now to go with it, right? You've, you've done this analysis. You've, you've analyzed it. Now, now go and do it. Uh, and how our defenses are often prevent us from taking that step. Um, so I, th- I think it'd be worth, you know, elaborating on that. Yes, I, I often tell people that just because you know better doesn't mean you'll do better. Right. Yeah, As you said, when, when yeah. you've taken all of the, the data points and, and you come up with all the different options and then you, you identify the option that it's really aligned with your values, it's the most win-win that you can possibly make it, it factors in what you feel and, and think, it doesn't mean that it's going to be realized unless you actually implement this decision. And so I, I write a whole chapter on courage because when we're about to do something different, right? We're about to do something that uh, has never been done before, at least for yourself, we should anticipate some level of fear and anxiety Mm -hmm. and 
just past experiences and just things that get in the way of us actually pulling the trigger and, and doing the thing that we've already thoroughly thought about. Like this is an informed decision, but yet I want readers to know, like just because you know better doesn't mean you'll do better. Anticipate that there's going to be some resistance. And in that chapter, I talk about how do you work through those points of resistance so that you have the courage to do it. And yeah, the courage is almost as important, right? As identifying what the decision is in the first place. Right. Yeah. And uh, there's so many times in my life where, you know, that, that final step, even though, you know, everything lines up and I know that's the thing, I just, yeah, I don't do it. But that, that brings us full circle to the trauma, trauma point, because I've got better and better over time at, you know, my, my action aligning with my heart, if you like, or the, the actions, you know, being more coherent with, you know, where I'm at, um, as I've worked more and more on my trauma, because yeah, I'm not, I'm not avoiding taking action because it's going to bring up some buried pain. Right. And, yeah. and, uh, so that's, so, so identifying those where I'm defended in that way, where I'm not acting in accordance with what I want to do or believe to be right to do, um, as a result of this trauma, if I can just dig, pull back that defense, heal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I can get better over time. Yeah. Even just understanding what are you defending from, right? There, there's a function mm. even behind that. And is it outdated? Maybe it made sense when you were 12. Like I totally made sense. You should defend from that because you had no other option but pain. Mm. But now that you're an adult, sometimes those things feel so fresh. Like it, it feels like it just happened last week and I'm, I'm defending. Mm. It, it's almost a, like a knee-jerk reaction to defend. And the courage piece is kind of peeling that layer back. Be like, okay, but does that still make sense though? Like, does it still make sense in this particular? I, I know how I feel. I know what comes up for me, but does that still make sense? Or, or, or do I want to test the waters and, 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 and do it, right? Just do the thing that I've identified and be pleasantly surprised, right? That it, you're not 12 years old, right? This is a different ballpark. It's a different game. We're not even playing the same sport anymore because of how much we've grown or that the situation you're facing is utterly different <laughs> from what yeah. you went through when you were younger. Yeah, yeah. It's like gr growing is easy. You just have to do what's hard, right? It's like, yeah, you, it's that taking that step when you know it's going to be emotionally painful, taking the step and then feeling the feelings, right? And, and, and right. processing what comes up. Like that's been my journey with this. That, that's what people call healing, right? Like what, what right. is healing? It sounds like this uh, mystical process. Well, well, healing is, in other words, a corrective emotional experience mm. around something that brought a lot of pain. But in order for you to have a corrective, positive experience around this area, well, you got to do something, right? You got to do mm. something to allow yourself to feel something differently. And then your brain has mm. to make sense of that again. It has to kind of recalibrate and be like, okay, that's always brought pain before, but that was really wonderful. Like I trusted someone and that person loved me back. And that yeah. was incredible. Like that was freaking incredible. It makes me want to do it again. I'm still scared. Like the defenses will still come up. Like, well, but hold up. You know, you might I just got lucky this time. Like, you may not want to do this again. And you're like, well, but I got to. Like, I, I got to try it again. Right. And, and, and that mm. is what healing is. It's almost like a replacement of past pain with something healing, some, some corrective experience about this situation.
Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me what, what one of the big steps I made was I said, I love you to my mother, right? I, I don't think I'd ever heard Ooh. that growing up from her, right? And I'd, yeah. and I'd never said it to her. And it was this massive thing where I said, I love you. And she didn't know what to do with it. I mean, that wasn't something we did in our family. She's like, but it was just, that was an example of, I just, just saying those three words to this person in my life was just this, ex, you know, extraordinary moment. And it, and it shifted everything, right? And I don't think I'd be in the relationship I was I mean, now, had it not been taking that step, right? And it's like, I really own something in myself when I said that. I'm so glad you did. Yeah, yeah. it's really powerful. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it certainly resonates. Um, now, the other thing that I found interesting reading the book was you do mention, um, you know, your belief in God and your faith. Um, so I was kind of expecting the section on, you know, listen to your quiet voice, you know, tune into what God is telling you, like that sort of whatever we might, spiritual intuition, whatever might we call it. Where does that fit in into this? So I, I did write the book for a much broader audience, but I felt like if I didn't share my authentic self, which has a spiritual component, then I would be kind of hypocritical. Like I'm like, yeah, you guys should make true, vibrant, authentic decisions, but I'm not going to bring up this aspect because it brings up a lot of controversy for people that may not ascribe to any form of spirituality. And so my book is definitely broad in terms of like the audience could be, if you're human, it's this book is for you. However, I wanted to come at it from an angle where because of my my faith and spiritual beliefs, that is where a lot of my value system is derived from, right? So some people are like, okay, maybe especially in, in Asian, Asian cultures, like, I don't know my values of self. Like, I don't know where that really comes from. And, and I kind of introduce some of my thoughts about my, my faith because my values of self I mean, it has to come from somewhere, right? It's not like we just come up with it miraculously by ourselves. It's, it's, it's always in context with something. And so with my spiritual background and experiences, I have chosen, right? So that's probably the key word. I have chosen to use my, my, my faith as a vehicle to identify the things that matter most to me. Okay. But again, it, it's up to the individual if they choose to do that. If, if they don't want to and mm. they have some other type of value system, well, bless your heart, do it, right? Like, hopefully it's generating the kind of life that you want, but it's not saying you have to have a certain kind of faith in order for the, the framework to be applicable to you. Mm. But I, I do kind of touch on it, but I don't really dive deep into that, that process. Right. No, no, that makes sense. I guess I'm still left with a question though, like where's the role for intuition, like the quiet voice, the listening, like, um, is it, is that a sort of thread that runs away through or, you know, what, yeah. Where does that, where does that fit in just, you know, decision-making do you think? Yeah. So I, I wouldn't say it is a specific pillar though. The values of self probably would be the one that I would conveniently fit the quiet, still voice in, in that category when you start understanding, okay, like, why do I feel the way that I do? Like, what, what really matters to me? Like, and, and where does that belief system even come from? That, that, that's probably a good time to be introspecting and, and kind of mm. figuring out, like, is that still small voice really affirming those values? Or 
uh, as I might have alluded to earlier, we can pick up values that are really not of us. Like they're they're just mm. other people's values, right? But we never gave it a, a, a second thought as to think for ourselves. Like, hey, I chose that value to be part of me. Like, not everyone has done that process. They just know, yeah. okay, I care about this. I care about the money. I, I care about. Uh, notoriety. Like, I want these things because it seems like it promises happiness. And I was like, but is that really what you want? I don't know. Isn't that what everyone wants? It's like, it's because they haven't taken the time to listen to that still small voice and be like, no, no, no. But is this something is, that's important to you? And, and, and can you mm. articulate why that's the case? And so, again, identity formation, personal development, it is not for the faint of heart, right? Like it, it, it beckons a a strong movement against kind of going with the current of kind of easy thinking, just kind of doing whatever everyone else is doing. But it, but it really, it's the salmon that fights upstream. It it, it's, it forces us to really think, okay, uh, is this who I am, and do I like where I'm going? And it, and and that's kind of the deeper implications of this framework right yeah that's 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 right on because you don't yeah because most of us walk through life kind of in like importing these like values right yes. like oh it's because that's that's what the tv is telling me i should want right i should buy <laughs> it that's right yeah <laughs> oh that's what my parents tell me i should be or like yeah so yeah from the identity formation perspective yeah even that aspect, like, because I, I, I always got to gravitate to the emotional part of it, just because I've had so much experience there. But you're right, even, you know, or maybe as well, the that identity formation, that, that introspecting deeply on, you know, what I value in life, that in itself is a is a big piece of work, right against the against the grain. Absolutely, and and of of course, this is a. Uh my shameless plug toward uh, consulting or, or counseling, it, it, sometimes it, it's so helpful to have a, another person who has these kind of expertise kind of guide you through that process. Because a lot of people, they just don't even know where to start, right? Like it, these lofty terms like identity formation, they, they sound great. Mm -hmm. I just don't even know where to start. And sometimes uh, hiring a specialist to, to kind of work with you, I mean, it can save you years off your life right instead of you kind of like poking around like trying stuff picking up random books uh, sometimes having someone that's like yeah i do have a framework like i, I do have a step-by-step -step process that can help you uncover those things now you just gain 10 years back in your life and the 10 years that you've gained right is so much richer right it's, it's so much purposeful mm. in terms of how you're living your life so uh for for different seasons, I, I would definitely recommend for, for those who, who want to, to live life to the full, so to speak, um, having that kind of guidance from a counselor can be of tremendous value. Right. Yeah. And also, I think I think in that part and also in the courage part, somebody just giving you that little nudge and saying, yeah. and oh, often they don't know, in my experience of those kind of relations, it's not even that they tell you, you just tell them, right, I'm going to do this thing. But the fact you've told yes. them. You've, you've created this accountability now, right? You made it real. That's yeah, right. Yeah, Otherwise, really you good. can kind of get away with not showing up because no one would know the difference, right? But uh, yeah. someone that you respect, someone that you admire, we're leveraging that part of our uh, mental makeup, which we want to look good in front of other people. So in a weird way, trying to 
impress others can be leveraged in a good manner because with yeah. accountability, we kind of don't want to let them down. And so we end up doing the healthy thing, like the right thing. And that can be a tremendous value, especially with courage, helping you feel that courage to do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. And, and just feeling like you're, cause it is, can, can be lonely work, right? Just, you know, my own experience is it can get pretty it lonely doing be. this kind of work. And, uh, but it doesn't have there. to be, but yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And that makes sense. Okay. Well, it feels like we've done a really good tour of the book. Is there anything I've missed? Is there anything we, you know, you'd want to have shared about that? You know, we haven't touched on. Well, my, my maybe last takeaway point, um, about the book, but just about our conversation is uh, there's probably some people listening who feel like it's it's too late for them. Like they've already made some Mm. massive poor decisions. They, they pretty much as like karma. I don't know. Like they are suffering and that's like, there are a lot in life. And I I really want to rebuke that. Right. And say decision-making is a skill, right? It's something that gets better with practice over time and, and learning how to do it. So you're only one decision away from a good one. And, and I really want to encourage people. It's never too late. If you're still breathing, you're still listening to our voices. It's not too late. You're, you're still here. So take your life seriously and, and learn how to make great decisions because that's totally going to change the trajectory of your life. And so that, that's my encouragement for our listeners. Brilliant. Well, I can't top that. So thank you so much. Um, We'll definitely put a link to the book. Once again, Choose Better, the Optimal Decision-Making Framework. Um, We'll put a link to the book. Is there anywhere else you said you've started a consulting firm or you're in a... Is that that up and running? I'm in the process of one. Yeah, but I do consulting myself uh, as as an individual. I'm I'm building a team. I just had that meeting this morning with with my team members. But I'm I'm doing work, you know, with the executive coaching, coaching, counseling, that sort of stuff. Okay. So uh, if people want to know more information, they can visit my website at www.timyen.com, T-I-M-Y-E-N.com. They can send me a contact and we'd love to hear from you. Excellent. All right. Well, then we'll put all of those uh, in the show notes. So show nuts, show notes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank you, Dr. Yen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. Had a really good time talking with you today. Thank you. All right. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.